0: Studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians for quite some time now, and I want to remind you, as we as we pick it back up tonight in Ephesians four, uh, chapter four, verse thirty-two, that in, in terms of the overall picture, I, w- I want you to recall that Paul is speaking about unity in the body of Christ. The book of Ephesians is more is more about unity within the entire body. We when we get to the pastoral epistles, Paul is making some specific prescriptions with regard to the local church. But in Ephesians, he's speaking primarily to the whole body first. And, of course, what applies to the entirety of the body of Christ is going to apply on an individual basis to the local church as well. And, he, and he's speaking of unity. Um, and unity is an extremely important topic. But when we get down to chapter 4, verse 32, this is just one, one sliver of that, which it, uh, of, of that which it takes to have unity within the body of Christ. And it's this concept of forgiveness. And we've been speaking about it for some time. It's my opinion... And it's a very strongly held opinion that this idea of Christians forgiving one another or the lack of forgiveness between Christians, which is unfortunately most often the case, can very well be a critical linchpin in our spiritual lives. The failure to forgive others when they have wronged us, and I'm talking about really have wronged us, not just a perceived wrong, but when they have really wronged us is a spiritual minefield. And while we we may think that we're doing really really well, we, others may tell us that we're doing really, really well with with regard to our spiritual life, but if we fail in this particular area, it's going to be disastrous. disastrous results with regard to our lives before God. This this thing we call the Christian walk, and we will be just as dead as a tree in the desert with regard to our walk with Christ. So in Ephesians chapter four, Paul brings up some of the things that it takes to walk in holiness with God. And remember, the reason we walk in holiness with God in the context of Ephesians is so that we'll have unity within the overall body of Christ. Now, there's, a, there's a, an interesting paradox sometimes that I think all Christians go through. Certainly pastors go through it as well, and that's when we decide what to teach to a particular audience, what, is that, that, what does that particular group need the most. And it's it's always a bit confusing as to why we spend a lot of time in Christianity speaking to believers on the subject that theologians call soteriology. You would you would think that soteriology, which means salvation, you'd think soteriology would be taught to non-believers. But why do we spend so much time speaking about soteriology to believers now? Soteriology is a $100 theological word, but really what it comes from a Greek word, soteria. You see it in the English word, S-O-T-E-R. A lot of times what we do in theology is the same thing they do in biology sometimes. We'll take a Greek word, put an ology on the end of it, and make it a real technical term. But soteriology means the study of salvation. And we, we might ask ourselves, why do we spend so much time as believers studying salvation? You'd think it'd be redundant, wouldn't you? But it's not. That would be an unfortunate thought if that's what we had. Because a thorough understanding, I'm not talking about a casual understanding. I think this is one of the problems with the church today. And I'm talking about the church worldwide. We need a thorough understanding of what happened for us, what God accomplished for us through Jesus Christ on the cross in order to understand and to fully appreciate the commands that He gives us after salvation. So many times, the the, the writers of the epistles rather will make a statement about salvation and then say, "Therefore, this is how I want you to live." When we get to a case in point, would be our passage tonight, Ephesians chapter four, thirty-two, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Now, did you catch that last part? That's soteriology. Paul is assuming that we know something about what was done for us in our salvation, and he's calling upon us to act in accordance with something that's already been done for us. And interesting, if we look to the next verse, which is the first verse of chapter 5, Paul says, "There, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So what he's doing when he calls upon us to forgive one another, he's saying you just need to do what God has already done for us. He's, he's exhorting us as believers to behave in the same gracious manner as God Himself did in His Son. The, the Greek term kardizomenoi is a is a participle. It's these are the Greek letters. Actually, it looks like this in English. But this particular Greek participle means to be gracious, to show kindness, to show favor, or to forgive. To be gracious, to show kindness, to show favor. Or to forgive, you see, all of that is wrapped up in this one word. This is not the normal word that is used for forgiveness in the New Testament. It's one of the words that's used, but this is a richer word than just simply to forgive, and that's going to be important in the discussion that we have later. So I'm not putting this up here just to impress you that that I know what this word means in Greek. I'm putting it up there so that you'll understand this is an extremely rich word that yes does mean forgiveness. But it means more than just forgiveness. It means to be gracious to someone, to show kindness, to show favor, and to forgive. So the meaning is very rich. It means forgiveness, to be, true, to be sure, but it means more. It means to show grace to another person. Now let's just get right down where we live. We have had so much grace shown to us. I always wonder, even with myself and with others too, why is it so difficult for us to show just a little bit of grace to someone else? But it really is. When, God, when, I, when I do something that is sinful, in other words, I violated God's holy standard, I come to Him and I confess that sin and I want forgiveness. I expect forgiveness. I've been promised forgiveness. And I expect total and complete forgiveness, not just conditional forgiveness. But when someone comes to us and they want forgiveness from us, we tend to hold back. And we tend to make them pay, by golly. And that is going to hurt our spiritual lives, not theirs. It will affect the success of our spiritual lives. It's not going to affect them so much. I'm I'm concerned with you and with me and our failure to forgive and what that does to our own spiritual lives. Again, I want you to remember that Paul is writing Ephesians with the overall purpose, the overall overall idea to promote unity Within the body of Christ. What he's saying here in the last part of Ephesians is without forgiveness, believer to believer, without graciousness on the part of all in the body, there will not be any unity. As they used to say, period, over and out. There will not be any unity without forgiveness. Now, if that's true in the body of Christ, and it is, it's not that hard to make the applicational jump to something like marriage. Marriage. If there's no forgiveness in marriage, you can forget. You can absolutely forget having a successful marriage because you have two people with two old sin natures that are living under one roof, and there are going to be conflicts. There are not just going to be perceived wrongs. There will be real wrongs. It happens even in the best of marriages. So without the the concept of forgiveness, not only will the church have a complete lack of unity, but marriages will have a lack of unity well, I want to point out one bit of grammar, if you'll allow me, that will aid, I think, in the presentation of this material tonight. Look again back at verse 32. And be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This word caridzoomonoi is this is the phrase that's translated forgiving one another. Now the interesting thing here is and hang in there with me. This is a, a present participle. The main thing you need to work, remember there is the term present. This is a present participle indicating that we have an ongoing responsibility to do this. That's the significance of that participle here. But the final phrase, this phrase here, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You can even see that in English, can't you? That is, that's an aorist an indicative. Aorist is one of those past tense ideas in Greek. See, this aorist indicative means that this is something that's already been done. It's already been accomplished for you on your behalf. It's a finished deal. So based upon something that's already been done, God says, I want you to continue to behave in a certain way. He has already accomplished. He's already forgiven us so much more than he ever asks us to forgive anyone else. The, 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 The idea of God's forgiveness in Christ has already happened. The cross occurred almost 2,000 years ago. So judgment of sin, which took place on the cross, has already happened. It's a past tense thing. And then the forgiveness of sins, which occurred at the moment you trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, that's, I hope for everybody here, is a past tense thing. So based upon that, then we need to do this. I hope you see the way that Paul is structuring this. It shouldn't be hard. What, what he's doing is he's calling us to act in a gracious way because we have already been the recipients of, can I say, great grace. I mean, all grace is great. But I'm gonna, we've been the recipients of enormous grace. He's doing here in a, I'm going to coin these terms, he's doing here in a micro way what he's already done in a macro way in this letter. We've, we've studied Ephesians for, for so many weeks and perhaps, I guess, months now. I always want to take us back to the overall flow of Paul's argument. I think it will help us to understand the individual phrases. Remember, there's two parts to Ephesians. The first three chapters are, are basically doctrinal. The second three chapters have been essentially applicational. We're in the applicational section now. But you remember what he did in the very beginning of this letter? Remember chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 that we spent so much time on? And in chapters 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul outlined many, not all, but many of the things that God did for us in salvation. And he explains these many things that God did for us before he ever begins to explain what God expects of us. Does that make sense? He explains what God did for us before he explains what it means to understand what what God expects of us. Again, if we don't have a thorough understanding, and I I know in a sense I'm preaching to the choir, but not really, because all of us need to be challenged with regard to this. If we don't have a thorough understanding of what has already been accomplished for us, we will never truly, genuinely buy into the idea of passing that grace on to someone else. We may do it. We may pass that grace on to someone else, but it won't be, it won't be for the right motivation. It may just be because we don't like conflict. You know, we, don't want, we don't want to approach anyone. We don't want to challenge anyone. Like it could be because of a personality thing because you're just a real gracious person or, you know, in terms of just the way that you're, you're hardwired. It could be something like that. But that's not really the way God wants us to behave. He wants us to behave with grace based upon the fact that we really understand we have been recipients of grace, not because of some personality benefit that we might have been blessed with. So we've been talking about the subject of forgiveness. We have already studied the ideas of our forgiveness that occurred the moment we placed our faith in Christ. We have studied in previous classes, the idea of our forgiveness of the temporal consequences of sin that occur at the, that occurs at the moment we confess that sin to God. And now we're considering the idea of forgiving one another. Last week, if you weren't here, last week we, we studied the mandate that we have to forgive. Now, this is one of the passages that tells us that we have that responsibility. Colossians three, thirteen was another. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, that's where we spent most of our time. And then finally we finished up last week with the parable of the of the wicked servant in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 25. And if you remember the end of that parable, the master was not real happy with the one who had been, watch, isn't it interesting? Forgiven much already in the past, and was expected to be show just a little bit of kindness to someone in the future and refused to do that. So all of this works together. So last week we considered the mandate to forgive. This week We'll consider the second of these two aspects, and that's a question. I'm going to ask it rhetorically tonight, but I'm going to, I'll am also do my best to answer it. It's a legitimate question, by the way. It's not a joke question. This is a question that people have, people ask, and it's legitimate, and I'm going to show you why it's legitimate. This is the question. Do I have to forgive another person if that other person who has legitimately wronged me doesn't apologize, repent? doesn't confess that sin. Does the person have to ask my forgiveness before I forgive them? And I do believe that's a fair question. And there are differing opinions on the answer to this question, even among those who are considered scholars in the New Testament. There are various ways that this question has been answered. Now, some point to the conditions, and listen carefully, because you'll see the question makes sense. And people are thinking through these issues because some, in answering that question, say, well, many, many times the New Testament writers use God as the example. I just did it, remember? Based upon what's done for me in the past, I'm expected to do this in the future. And they look back to the past. And they say, well, how do I tap into God's forgiveness? Well, in terms of the forgiveness from the eternal penalty of sin, how do we tap into that? By grace through faith. I didn't just stand there like a a, a tree trunk. I had to, I had to do something. I had to exercise faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ in order to receive the forgiveness from the eternal penalty of sin, did I not? And then we moved on to the temporal consequences of, of sin that we confess that we commit after salvation. and how do we tap into that? Well, if we remember we studied if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we' if we're considering all the issues, we may, Somewhat legitimately conclude, then listen, if Christ is the model, if God is the model for forgiveness and I have to confess my sin to him before I receive his forgiveness, then maybe she does need to to apologize to me before I forgive her. Maybe he does need to confess that he was wrong before I forgive him. Perhaps. But there's more to it. first thing I would like to point out, I think, is the most obvious thing in the world. That's that we're not God. And he's totally righteous, and we're not. So we're on a little different playing field when it comes to this issue. If a believer refuses or neglects either one to confess his or her sins after salvation, that believer does not lose their salvation. I hope we all understand that. We call that the the doctrine of eternal security, and it's a central doctrine of the Christian faith. Now, this is what I want you to pay so much careful attention to. It may sound slightly different from what you may have been taught before. So when we are, when we're saved, we are forever forgiven from the eternal penalty of sin. Now, I'm a believer. Now, by the way, that also brings me into the family of God, does it not? Into the body of Christ. Now, as a believer, I also commit sins. In 1 John, the purpose of 1 John is to tell us how we can maintain fellowship with God, koinonia, that very close, intimate, personal fellowship with Him. So, when I sin, I lose something. I don't lose my salvation, but I lose that close, intimate, personal fellowship with God. So, I confess my sin, and I'm restored to fellowship. We've all studied that uh, probably hundreds of times, if not thousands, over the course of our Christian lives. Now, there is, as someone who is a is is a member of the body of Christ. I want you to listen so carefully this because this will help us to understand the concept of forgiveness later, believer to believer. As a member of the body of Christ, I am God's child. And there is an aspect of of fellowship with God that I will never completely lose. There is an aspect of fellowship with God that I will never completely lose. Because I am His child. Let me let me see if I can illustrate this way. As a believer, when I sin, I lose something. I lose that koinonia relationship that, that John talks about. But I don't go back to being an unbeliever. I don't go back to being a, an unregenerate person. It's not as though I'm now unsaved, and Paul regards me as a as a heathen or one that is lost. He doesn't. He still regards me as His child, although I have lost that intimacy, that closeness, With God. There is an aspect, and I just say an aspect of fellowship with God that the unrepentant believer enjoys that the unbeliever does not. You see how I'm using those terms? There's an aspect of fellowship with God that the unrepentant believer does enjoy that the unbeliever does not. Because I'm a member of his family, I'm his child, and I will forever be his child. Those of you that have wandering children, I think would be in a better position to fully understand this than those who have a, a wonderful family where no one has ever wandered. You see, because even if you've had a child, and I know some, some in this room do, so I'm, I'm not in any way uh, trying to be insensitive, but I know some have, have kids that they haven't spoken to in a decade or more. As a matter of fact, there are many people in our church that are in that situation. But even though you may not have spoken to that child in a decade or more, Deep down in the pit of your soul, in the deep recesses of your soul, you realize that's still your child. Now, you can write them out of your will. You can write them out of your life and say, they're not my child anymore, but they are your child. If they they really were, they are your child. And even though there is an aspect of fellowship that has been lost, to be sure, they still have your genes in them. They still have your genetics. And deep down... You still care <clears throat> deep down, just like the, the the father of the prodigal son. You want them to come back. It, it would it would make nothing would make you happier than if they came back. Now you might have given up on them coming back, but that's what you really want. That's what I mean. There is this familial, if I could use that term. There is this familial fellowship that can never be lost. Our position in Christ can never be lost, and we will always, as as one who is regenerate, have a a relationship with God that is more special than one who has never accepted Christ as their Savior, and that that will help us, I think, in understanding how we are to confess how we are to deal with one another. Now, having said all that, there is an aspect to conf- to fellowship that the unrepentant believer now will never fully enjoy. That the unrepentant believer will never fully enjoy the relationship with their creator that they were designed to have. You see. They'll have something but they won't have all that they were designed to have. They'll never enjoy the full benefit that was designed to be theirs. Now the repentant believer the repentant believer who confesses his post-salvation sins and grows in grace will enjoy the intimacy with God for which he's created. Let me see if I can put it another way. There are temporal consequences to post-salvation sinning. Losing your salvation is not one of them, but there are temporal consequences to post-salvation sinning. One can be forgiven from the eternal penalty of sin, and still suffer the temporal consequences of sin. I think we can all identify with that. No no need to amen that, and we're not going to give any personal testimonies. But I think all of us could say that after salvation, we made some decisions that we, uh, to be politically correct, we made decisions that we now regret. Actually, to be biblically correct, we have sinned after salvation. And all of us have suffered the consequences of those sins after salvation. But none of us have lost our salvation after we have sinned. Now, with that introduction, let's turn to a passage that we haven't studied in quite some time. That will be germane to our discussion tonight, and that's Acts. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples about this subject. The whole of Scripture is the Word of God, but it's always. Um, It's always kind of fun to see exactly what Jesus would say about a specific topic. And let's see what he said himself personally. Chapter 17, verse 1, he said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom they come. So don't be be a troublemaker within the body of Christ. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, that is that is primarily speaking about those who abuse children. It's, God does not play that game. He doesn't play the game of people who abuse children, and he doesn't. In biblical times, the other group that was mentioned oftentimes with it were widows, widows and orphans. They were the two most helpless group in ancient times, so that's why... That's that way. Now look at verse 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now in the context, we'll see in a second, the sinning is against you. Now uh, David said, of course, against thee and the only have I sinned. Well, obviously he's he's speaking about a, a, a the ultimate holiness of God. Certainly he sinned against Bathsheba. Certainly he sinned against Uriah the Hittite, he murdered him or had him murdered. But ultimately the sin is against God. But in this context, this is one believer in context doing something that's offensive to another believer. Again, not a perceived offense. This is a real offense. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And the reason we know that's something against you, because if if you if I if you come to me and say, listen, uh, I really messed up yesterday. I did something to really offend my wife. And I say, No problem, you're forgiven. Um, your wife may say, hold, hold on just a minute. I think I should be in this equation somewhere. You see? Now, God can do that, but we can't. You see? God can do that, but we can't. That's why when Jesus says he has the power to forgive sins, he's claiming a divine prerogative and the prerogative that he's God. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, and return and returns to you, or repents seven times a day, saying, "I repent," forgive him. And this looks a whole lot like there's a condition here to the forgiveness. Verse three, which reads, "Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him." This. Is a conditional sentence, a lot like First John one nine. There's some dissimilarities there too, but remember that if we confess, then will then he'll forgive. And this is very very similar. If A in First John one nine, if if A occurs, then B is going to happen. Here it is slightly different, and I want you to notice the difference. And the difference is because of the referent. In the first. Conditional clause, 1 John 1, 9, God is the one that's going to do the action. What he, he is faithful, and he's going to do exactly what he's always promised to do. With us, it's a little different. So this would, this would be broken down something like this. If one does A, the other party has the responsibility to do B. So if someone's wronged you and they come and they repent, that's the first part of the conditional, then you have the responsibility to forgive them. You see how how Jesus is outlining this. Now, if it was God, he could say, if this happens, then this is going to happen. But with us, who knows? Much of the time, we don't. I wish it was that that, uh, certain. I wish for me it was that certain, that I would be able to forgive like that. To put this passage in context, because again, don't forget verse 4, if he sins against you seven times a day. Now, the words, the seven times a day is is a, in the Hebrew mindset, this is the Greek text, but the Hebrew mindset is a, is a term for completeness. In other words, this is the one on number eight. You don't have to do it anymore. This is an idea that, like in Matthew 18, there's a complete a completeness with regard to this number. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. So the condition seems to be this. Someone has wronged you. It's a real wrong, not a perceived wrong. The reason I keep saying that is so many times we just perceive other people have wronged us and they haven't really wronged us at all. You know, we, just, we have just blown something out of proportion or we've, uh, we've taken something in a wrong way that they had no, uh, no intent to ever hurt us at all. But we're talking about something that is a, a real wrong. The Jews had their own attitude about something like this. If They, they felt like if certainly the private reproof, repentance with some sort of restitution and forgiveness were all part of standard doctrines of Jewish piety. So this is a framework that Jesus is already speaking in. That's not exactly the same as what he's saying because there's no repentance with restitution in Jesus's comments, but private reproof, repentance, and forgiveness were standard aspects of Jewish piety. Now here's the thing, the rabbis doubted the genuineness of one's repentance if the event continued to happen. But like these Jews often did, the scribes often did, because they had legal minds, what Jesus is, what Jesus does is he comes right back at them and offers them a theoretical case. If a person does genuinely repent repeatedly, then you must forgive that person Repeatedly. See, that's the difference in what the Jewish mindset of the day was and what Jesus is teaching here. So there's no limit. You have to continue to forgive. The, the Greek term here, which, which is used in verse 3, be on your guard if your brother sins, rebuke him. Rebuke him. This is the term ebitamao, which means to rebuke, to reprove, to censure, to speak seriously, or to warn in order to... To prevent an action or to bring a particular action to an end. That's that last meaning that is in the context here. To warn in order to prevent an action or to bring one to an end. Now, in order to understand this, we don't have the, the time to do it, but we've studied it before. Don't forget Matthew 7. Before you start correcting someone else, taking the speck out of their eye, make sure you get the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly. So do this with fear and trembling. But in the context that we have here, when someone sins against you, and it's the real deal, not a perceived sin, but the real deal, then there is a legitimacy to you having a conversation with them with the idea of warning in order to prevent an action or to bring one to an end. The scenario would play out something like this. Someone does something to you that is a legitimate offense, not something that you just simply choose to take as a legitimate offense, but a real offense. You, your key word, lovingly, not in anger, not in viciousness, but you lovingly approach that individual and discuss the situation with them with the goal of preventing that action from occurring in the future or with the intention maybe of bringing the offending action to an end if it's something that's ongoing. So you have a loving conversation with the person. Yes, it's a confrontation, but you can have loving confrontations with people. And if you're married, you've had loving com- confrontations with your spouse. If, if not, then we, both of you need to see a psychiatrist because there are conflicts that come up, and every now and then you got to say, "Hey, well, well, wait a minute. We're going to do what? <laughs> We're going to buy what? <laughs> you know?" So, so, but in loving, in a lovingly, in a loving way, yeah, of course. <laughs> Otherwise, you just you're going to be picking yourself up off the floor. The guys, will, not the girls, of course. So you have a conversation with them. And then the person sees your point. That happens. Sometimes doesn't. In a, in a perfect world, that would happen more often than it does right now. But the person sees your point. And then in polite society, what would be the norm? In polite society, the person would say, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't realize I did that. Or I'm sorry, I didn't realize that would offend you. Or I'm, I'm, my bad. Maybe I intended to do it. But hey, listen, I regret doing it now. My bad. You know, something like that. I apologize. I'm sorry. My bad. Or, or, or something equivalent to that it's most likely going to accompany the repentance that is talked about here. The repentance is a turning away from that behavior or just stopping the behavior. So what's your responsibility then? It's a command now. It's your responsibility to forgive the individual. Now, sometimes we say we need to forgive and forget. Okay, well, let's get real. The way the brain works, it doesn't necessarily mean you can erase it from your memory. Now, in some of the movies, maybe you can attach something there and all the memory is gone. But in real life, it doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work that way with God either, by the way. God is omniscient. He doesn't ever forget anything. As a matter of fact, He never learned anything. He doesn't forget anything. He's always known everything and always will know everything. So when we, when we speak about forgetting, it, it doesn't mean that we just there's no cognition of it anymore. It means that the issue is not acted upon anymore. either by overt action or in our thought lives. You know what I mean. Sometimes we might pretend to be nice, but deep down in our soul, we still harbor resentment. That's not what this passage is all about. So, we could say, since we've used the Father's forgiveness of us as the norm, since we certainly have a clear teaching here that it does seem like if A, then the responsibility is to do B, if they confess and repent, then we have the responsibility to forgive. You can see why someone would say, well, listen, they haven't they haven't even admitted to me that they did anything wrong. I'm not going to forgive them. Now, just say that, not now, but just say it in front of the mirror tonight and see if you can say that and still stay in fellowship with God. You can't. Because you're angry when you do it. So, certainly it's the norm. Certainly that's what we would like. That's what we would expect. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about in Luke 17. He's talking about the norm. Typically, in normal, civil human interaction, when one wrongs another person, there is some form of apology. It may be formal or it may be informal based upon how well you know the person. You know, people I know really, really well they don't even have to say, I'm sorry, but I know they mean it just by a look or a tap or buying lunch or whatever it may end up being. You can tell that's their way of apologizing. you know them so long, they don't even have to say it. But typically, people are going to say something. Some, some people apologize by cracking a joke. And you know, okay, that's the tension's over, and then that's their way of, of coming back. So it may be formal or informal based upon the level of familiarity between the individuals, but typically there is some acknowledgment of the wrongdoing. And there's also, hopefully, some acknowledgment on the part of the offender here. And we're talking about something that is 100% wrong to 0% wrong, which is not usually the case. But in this example, there's some acknowledgment. There's some indication on the part of the one who's done the offending that, listen, okay, yeah, I see your point. We're not going to go down that road anymore. I appreciate you pointing that out to me. Okay. But you're all thinking about this. At least least I've thought about it a lot. It's happened to me. There are other occasions when the person who has wronged you does not in any way acknowledge the wrong. In fact, they don't in any way think they did anything to wrong you. As a matter of fact, they think you owe them an apology. You know what I mean? You've been in that situation before. There's no apology. There's no repentance. And in a lot of cases, they think that you owe them one. They don't owe you anything. All right, now what do we do? Now what do we do? If you're wise, if you're spiritually wise, you're going to forgive them and you're going to move on. And by moving on, I mean putting the situation behind you. The passage we studied last week, Matthew chapter six, verses fourteen and fifteen, didn't say anything about a condition for forgiving one another. Just said if we don't, he's not going to. Because I hope you, I hope you've put two and two together here because the failure to forgive is in itself a sin. you see So if we confess everything else but we don't forget we don't confess that and we keep on with that attitude, then we're going to be walk, walking in constant carnality ourselves. It's in our best interests to forgive. Now, a lot of times we don't want to do it we want to hold on to the anger, we want to hold on to the bitterness. I don't know why. But there's something about the human condition where we, we kind of enjoy being bitter sometimes about certain things. We don't want it long term, but just a little bit of bitterness. Just let me stay mad for a little while. That's what we'd really like to do. And God says, no, put it behind you. It's in your best interest to do so. Because to, to maintain an unforgiving spirit is just harming you, it's not harming the other person. You want to harm the other person, they don't care. They're waiting for you to apologize to them. To maintain the unforgiving spirit is just going to hurt you. And it gives the enemy a constant opening for attack while doing nothing for your own spiritual life. It's a pitfall. You'll find yourself consistently out of fellowship with God. And one day, one day you're going to wake up and it's going to hit you like a brick falling upon your head. That actually that person got to you twice. Once when they wronged you, assuming that it was a legitimate wrong, once when they wronged you, and now they got to you a second time because you're still out of fellowship because of what they did, but this time it's not their fault. It's your fault. It's my fault for, for hanging on to it and not forgiving them. This time their action kept us out of fellowship by our choice, not by their choice. And life's too short for that. Who thinks they have enough time to spend a lot of time in bitterness? I don't. Life is too short to spend time in bitterness. Now, having said all that, we have to note that forgiveness does not mean that we're obligated to continue to put ourselves in a position to be hurt, cheated, or abused. If your business partner cheats you, it's in your best interest to forgive him but you don't necessarily have to continue in business with that particular partner. If your boyfriend is abusive, yes, you need to forgive him, but it doesn't mean you need to go through with the marriage. If a friend continually takes advantage of the friendship, forgive her, and then find someone else to spend intimate time with. Now, the more families are more difficult because there, are, there will be... Christmas dinners. There will be Thanksgiving where we are, where we have to get back together. There will be weddings and there will be funerals. So families are kind of like marriages. Hopefully when you have a problem with a spouse and the forgiveness thing doesn't work out real well, I hope you don't, don't split the sheets. A lot of Christians do. Far too many do. But these are the more difficult And so with that in view, in the last few minutes that we have, I want to talk about two aspects of human forgiveness now. Two aspects of the dynamic of how this would work out. One is subjective and the other one is objective. I think this will make sense as we close. When I am legitimately wronged, whether the offending individual ever acknowledges the wrong, I can subjectively forgive them. I can subjectively forgive them. And what this means is that I harbor no ill will toward that individual. That I expel all malice and bitterness from my soul concerning that person. And that I begin once again to look at that person through a lens of love. That's what I mean by subjective forgiveness. It's something that I can do. Listen, I can't can't account for what somebody else is going to do. I can only account for myself. I can't make them confess to me so that I can... Forgive them and get it off my chest and, and move on. If they don't want to do it, then it's up to you to subjectively forgive them, to send all the malice out of your soul. And I mean all of it. I don't mean just holding some back for a rainy day, especially with husbands and wives. You know what I mean? Holding some back for the rainy day. You remember back in 1963. <laughs> I'll never forget that. No, I mean, it's forgetting what happened in 1963. on. That's what I mean by subjective forgiveness. It's something that you have complete control over. You have no control over the other person, but you do have control over you. Now, for objective, the other kind of forgiveness to occur, though, there most likely needs to be that Luke 17 conversation. Because wrongdoing does carry with it consequences. Suppose I go on vacation, and I give my neighbor who's, let's just say for this illustration, he's a Christian, I give the, my neighbor the key to my house. I'm gone a couple weeks, and when I get back, I go into my garage, and I notice my lawnmower's gone. Okay, that's odd. So I came, and they just stole my lawnmower. I thought they'd steal some other but This has happened to be, not from my neighbor, but I have had my lawnmower stolen enough, enough times, it's aggravating. <laughs> so I go in there, my lawnmower's gone. I need to cut my yard. I look outside, and the neighbor who I loaned my key to is out there cutting his grass with a lawnmower that looks a lot like mine. Same model, same tape on the gear shift, and it's just like, wait a minute. I'm a little suspicious, but because we're friends, I'm thinking, no way he stole my lawnmower. Maybe he just borrowed it and forgot to bring it back, and this afternoon when he sees my yard and he's cutting, he'll bring it back, and I'll, I'll be fine. Well, he never brings it back odd. No, I wasn't sure that he stole it, but it looks like, to me, it looks like he did. Next summer, I go on vacation again. So, because I'm a trusting fellow, and the guy's a friend of mine, I give my key to him again, and I say, well, I'll be back. Could you wash my house warm? Well, oh, sure, no problem. I come back, and then when I go into my garage the next time, my power washer's gone. I'm thinking, "No, oh, this is odd. Two vacations, two things out of my Garage. And I look outside the next Saturday morning, and here's my neighbor washing his driveway down with a power washer. It looks almost exactly like mine. Okay. So I say, "Well," no, I tell my wife, "I said I, I got to go talk to him. This is odd. This, this is. I mean, in order to for us to have some kind of relationship here, I got to I got to find this out." So I go say, "Hey, listen. Um, I just no offense. You know, I don't mean any offense by this at all, I, and I hope you don't take this in the wrong way, but." But you know, I am missing a lawnmower and a power washer, and, and I noticed you got a lawnmower and a power washer, and that lawnmower looks a whole lot like mine, especially because of the tape that I put around the, the gear shift there. And and I just wondered, did you forget to did you maybe borrow them by accident, and forget to bring them back? No, I did not. Those are mine. They're not yours. Oh, okay. Well, I know good and well they're mine. Because they had markings that were mine. So what am I supposed to do? Well, fool me once. Okay, but fool me twice. And, well, all right. So I forgive him. And what that means is I set aside all malice. It's not like something you call the police about. You know, I mean, I'm going to set aside all malice from my soul. I'm going to look at him through a lens of love. But then the next year when I go on vacation, I'm probably going to ask the neighbor on the other side to take a look at the house. Instead of that particular one, and then finally the, the fellow maybe sees the light. Maybe he hears a sermon at church on "Thou shalt not steal," and he comes to me and he says, "Hey, listen, I got to tell you something. You know, the last couple of years when I watched your house, um, I did take your lawn mower and I did take your power washer, and I'm sorry about that. Let me let me give them back to you now." Okay, well that's cool. Of course, I already bought another lawnmower, or power washer, so I don't need two. But I appreciate you giving that back to me. I appreciate you coming, being, being upfront with me about that. But when next summer comes around, the fourth summer, I'm probably still going to get the other neighbor to wash my house because there there has been a level of trust that's been broken that's going to carry with it certain consequences. It doesn't mean I don't wave at him in the morning. Hey, Bob, how you doing? Good to see you. Have a great day at work. And I mean, when we come home in the evening, we say, hey, great day. You know, you coming over for the barbecue? Yeah, I'm, yeah, sure. I'll be over for the barbecue. But I'm not going to put him in a position to do the same thing over and over. Apparently, he has some problem with kleptomaniac. And you don't put a, a kleptomaniac kleptomania you don't put a kleptomaniac um, in charge of a bank vault. In fact, think about it. It wouldn't be a gracious thing to do, would it? No. It wouldn't. It would, be like, it would be like having someone who's an alcoholic work at a liquor store. Or someone who is, is hooked on prescription drugs function as a pharmacist. You actually want to take them out of that. So it would be more gracious not to give them the key. But the point is there are consequences. The relationship has been somewhat changed, although I can still enjoy a certain amount of fellowship with them. We're out of time tonight, but let me just close up with this. So the point being, as far as it is under my control, there's a command that God has given us to live at peace with all men. As far as it is under my control. I can't control somebody else. I can't control the objective part so much. That takes them coming up and and repenting and saying they're sorry. I can't control that. But I can control the subjective part. And with the subjective part, I can still move on with my spiritual life. Remember, that means expelling all malice, all bitterness, not just some, and looking at that person through a lens of love. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, read this way, and I'll close with this. The writer to the Hebrews says, pursue peace with all men. Did you hear that? Pursue peace with all men. That includes people who have wronged us. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes up short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and many are defiled by it. Pursue peace. It's not a passive word. This is a very active word. It means to do just that. It means to pursue something, to seek something, to run after something, to chase after something. This is a lion chasing down a gazelle. That, that's the same word. Yoko, it, means, it means to pursue with everything that you've got. This should be a priority that we have in our life. To pursue peace. The lack of hostility. The Greek term, irene. It's a, we, we, we don't want to pursue a lack of hostility. That's what so many of us does, do. We, we seem to enjoy that. But it's deadly to our spiritual lives. We're to actively seek peace with all men, not passively, actively. That means we have to actively forgive, and we need to look for the opportunity to restore when it's appropriate. And it may be some time before the consequences of whatever occurred may be reversed. But the first thing we have to do is subjectively forgive, and we've got to get it all out. Because if we hold on to it, it's, this, it's, it's very similar. To use a medical illustration of, of getting 90% of a tumor, 10% can still be a problem. When, when physicians get 90% of a tumor, ordinarily, now I'm not an oncologist, but I, I know some, but ordinarily they will prescribe treatment for the other 10% to make sure that it doesn't end up becoming a, a problem. You've got to get it all out because if it's not all out, then it metastasizes to the rest of your soul and your spiritual life is dead in the water. The Bible tells us that we love because He first loved us. It also tells us that we have the responsibility to act graciously toward others because we have been the recipients of great grace ourselves. Well, next week when we reconvene, we'll be on into Ephesians chapter 5. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the last few weeks that we've been able to, to discuss this extremely challenging topic. Help us to remember all that's been done for us in the past with regard to forgiveness, the great grace that you've shown us. And when it comes time for us to show another, even just a little bit of mercy through your Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd help us, motivate us, to to act consistently with who we are in Christ and with what has already been done for us. We know this is challenging. Uh, There wouldn't be so much written about it in the New Testament if it wasn't. But help us to forgive one another as we have been forgiven. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name.